Good morning to everyone. Yes, it is fall. The jacket is back. Have you seen the forecast for tomorrow? You'd be wearing a jacket too. It's only in Texas. We'll have the air conditioner on this afternoon and the furnace on tomorrow morning. But uh, it's good to be with you and always a great privilege to open God's word and to discern his voice therein. You can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we'll find our portion for today. And as you are turning there, I want to set the stage by asking just a couple of questions. What were you thinking? That's question number one. What did you think would happen? That's question number two. And one more. Why didn't you stop and think? Uh, Those are questions that some of us have asked. We have asked our children, perhaps on occasion. And so you have little Jeffrey. I choose Jeffrey because I don't think we have any Jeffreys here at the church. There's a little Jeffrey and uh, boyhood delight, 10 years of age, rambunctious, full of life and energy and everything else. We have a big Jeffrey, but not a little Jeffrey. (laughs) I just noticed. And uh, his parents have warned him of light sockets, right? They're on the wall, the dangers of them and the hazards associated with them. He knows. One day he decides to take a fork and he drives that fork into the light socket and he gets the shock of his life. He's okay, just a little singed around the exterior's extremities, but he's fine. And his father finds out what he has done and his father asks him, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? What did you think would happen? Why didn't you stop and think? Or as I think of it now, uh, a really good question. What was going through your mind at the precise moment you put that fork in the light socket? It's a very useful question. It is a very effective question uh, when used appropriately. When we use it, As a means, a means by which we seek to draw a child's attention to the obvious disconnect between what they know and what they do. There is a void. There is an obvious separation. It is apparent to all. They know this, but they do that. What Were you thinking? In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses a similar question. We might not like this, but he uses a question, the same question nine times with exactly the same intent. He is seeking to draw the Corinthian believers' attention to the disconnect between what? What they know and what they do. He is not criticizing their comprehension, but what? Their application. And so he employs the question nine times for the first time in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. 
Do you not know? There it is. Do you not know? Now just pause for a moment. Look at me. Yes, they do know. That's not his point. He is not casting doubt on their comprehension of the truth that he's about to state. He is not introducing something new. He is not bringing now to their attention something that they have never heard before. He is using this phrase. Why? To grab their attention. Do you not know? Yes, you do know this truth. The issue is this. Why don't you act like it? Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Back to the start of our text. Do you not know? Again, so that we be perfectly clear. The issue is not comprehension. The issue is application. They are still consuming, as we learned last Sunday, they are still consuming milk. They can't handle Meat. Why? Because they are not yet ready for the full significance of what they know cognitively. The gospel of Christ crucified. And so Paul very intentionally employs this question so that they understand the, the angle, the direction from which he is coming and what it is precisely he is now trying to accomplish. He is going to speak truth to them. Truths they already know and thereby draw attention to the fact that the way they act, the way they behave is completely antithetical to what they know, which leads to the obvious question, do you not know? 
Because if you really did, your lives wouldn't look like this. There are three key truths that he's going to drive home. Truths which they're already aware of, but that he is going to introduce at this juncture in the letter, reminding them of the significance of these truths. Let me give them to you. Here they are, number one. Do you not know who you are? That's the first truth. Do you not know who you are? Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? Do you not know that? You are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you, you are that temple. Oh, the significance of this extends all the way back to John 1, 14, where we learn that the word of God became flesh. And what did he do? He dwelt among us. The phrase to dwell literally means to dwell in a tent, to pitch a tent. You need to understand the phrase in the Old Testament context, which is what? The tabernacle. Later, the temple. What purpose did the tabernacle serve? Later, the temple. It was where God pitched his tent. It is where God manifested his glory, and it is the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people. It was never the end. The tabernacle and the temple pointed to something far greater, pointed to the accomplishment of God's promise, which was what I will dwell among my people. And the promise will not be fulfilled in the reconstruction of a building in Israel. The promise was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. God has pitched his tent. He dwells in the Lord Jesus. And by virtue of the fact that we are one with Christ through faith, And by the Holy Spirit, what does that make us? It makes us the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God's spirit. That's the first truth. Do you not know who you are? Here's the second. Do you not know what you own? I'm sure most of us do. You're going thinking of your mortgage right now, the car in the parking lot, all sorts of things. No, 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 no. Stay in the text. Do you not know what you own? Well, what is Paul referring to here? Look with me at verse 21. So let no one boast in men for all things. Wow. Are yours. Do you not know what you own? Whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, that has direct bearing on the immediate audience, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. So do the math, work backwards. God is the creator, possessor of all things, the almighty. 
Well, Christ is God's. He is God's image, God's radiance, God's son, God's word, God's heir. We are Christ's. We are one with him, purchased by his blood. Well, if all things belong to God, therefore all things belong to Christ. And if all things belong to Christ with whom we are one, therefore all things belong to us. You realize that, Christian? I'm speaking to Christians, right? I'm speaking specifically to us as a local church, Grace Community Church, because that's the parallel. Paul was speaking to a local church, the church at Corinth. Do we realize that as Christians, those in union with Christ, all things are ours. The world, yes, this world, it's mine. It's a bold statement, isn't it? This world is ours. Everything in this world, all things on the face of this planet are ours. Why? Because they are Christ's and we are the co-heirs with Christ. We do not possess them all right now, but they are ours by right. They are ours by deed. And the day is coming when we will possess what we own presently. Not only is it true that all things in this world are ours, but all events are ours. All occurrences, absolutely everything that has ever happened in human history, everything going on currently, and everything that will transpire prior to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, all human events are ours. Because Christ himself is working all things together for our good. Christ himself rules and reigns right now. It is called his providential kingdom. And he does so for the good and the benefit of his spiritual kingdom, the church. All things are yours. The world is ours. Life is ours. Every breath. Every moment of every day, of every year, every event, pleasant, unpleasant, good, bad, every relationship, every emotion, every conversation, every experience, these things are not meaningless. These things are not purposeless. These things are not haphazard, but God employs them all for our good. It is the great dilemma of our day. The great dilemma of our day is the incalculable number of people who live life as if this were all there is. The incalculable number of people who live life as an end in itself with no understanding as to how God governs all things, no understanding as to the fact that life is not haphazard, that we are not at the mercy of blind forces, we are not at the mercy of luck or chance or anything like that. But life is ours because life ultimately is God's. And it means, therefore, that everything that has to do with our being Everything that has to do related to our existence, it serves us. We don't serve it. Serves us how? 
We may not always fully understand it. We might not always be able to fully see it or clearly apprehend it, but it serves for our ultimate good. All that God has designed and purposed for us. What else does Paul say in there? Death is ours. Your death belongs to you. You're not a victim of your death. Your death is yours. Why? Because we don't fear it. It doesn't terrify us as Christians. It doesn't control us. It doesn't master us. Why? Because its stinger has been removed. And death serves a purpose. It is a door. It is a door to what? The very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is ours. The present is ours. All moments. All events. All experiences. All challenges. All successes. All failures. Go on and on and on and on. We are not the slaves of time. Nor are we the slaves of chance. The present. Everything that transpires serves one ultimate glorious end to make us glorious in Christ Jesus. And the future is ours. God dwells in one indivisible moment called eternity. He knows nothing of before and he knows nothing of after. He owns time, the centuries. All this belongs to Christ. By virtue of our union with Christ, it all belongs to us. The future is ours. We might have very little at the moment. We might go through life in a rather despicable and depressed state. But the future belongs to us. We will inherit a new heaven and a new earth. We will know eternal pleasures that defy our understanding. There will be no sound of weeping. There will be no cry of distress. There will be no tension, no division, no turmoil, no conflict, no death. There will be nothing but endless delight. The future is ours. So Christian, did you know that? Do you know what you own? Really? Do you know who you are? God's temple. Do you know what you own? Absolutely everything. You do not serve anything. It serves us. Third truth is this. Do you not know whom you serve? Chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Skip all the way to the end of verse 5. On that coming day when we stand before the Lord, what do we have to look forward to as stewards and as servants, his subordinates? Each one will receive his commendation from God. We are his servants. All right? You got all that? Do you know? Do you know who you are? Do we know who we are? Do we know what we own? And do we know whom we serve? Do we know? The points of application. Well, let me just tell you, I've been at it all week, and I have sheets and sheets and sheets of paper, 
and I am going to spare you most of what I have come up with. The points of application, friend, do you know who you are? Do you know what you own? Do you know whom you serve? What does that mean for the abused among us? All right? You can can work it out yourself. What does that mean for the disillusioned, the disheartened, the discouraged? What does it mean for the abandoned, the neglected, the oppressed? What does it mean for those uh, overwhelmed with grief at present? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you own? Do you know whom you serve? What what does it mean for those who who have been inflicting harm on themselves? Self-harm. Suicidal thoughts. Do you know who you are? Do you know what you own? Do you know whom you serve? What does it mean for those indulging sin? What does it mean for those given to drunkenness? What does it mean for those dabbling in sexual immorality? What does it mean for those still struggling with pornography? Any number of sins, list them. Do you not know who you are? Christian, do you not know who you are. Do you not get it? Comprehend what it is you own, what is yours. And do you not understand, do you not fully grasp whom you serve? And those sheets of paper, oh, it goes on and on and on. I might share some of it with you. I don't know for Wednesday night. We'll see how the next couple of days go. But you know, it's not the road Paul goes down. He doesn't go any of those places in this text. Where does he go? He has but one thing in view. He has only one particular point of application to make. And it's very simple. It is this. The Corinthian believers, the Corinthian church has adopted the world's values. The Corinthian believers are thinking precisely like their neighbors. They are cherishing the same values. Hence, they crave what their society craves. Here it is. Influence, position, power, notoriety, popularity, status, and the list goes on. He has been addressing this issue since chapter 1, verse 10. He is going to wrap it up all up at the end of chapter 4, but he still has it before him. It is what is primarily in view as he reminds the Corinthian believers of who they are, what they own, whom they serve. Here's the thing. They already know all these things. What's Paul's point? The issue is not comprehension in their case. What is it? It is a failure to apply. They are living in a fashion. They are living in a manner. They are conducting themselves in a way that is completely inconsistent with what they know to be true. 
They are behaving in a way that is entirely antithetical to what they know to be true. Hence the question, do you not know? It it is a question that has direct bearing on us today. It it is a question that has direct relevance. I, I, I was reminded of this recently. I think it was Oh, a few years ago now, four or five years ago now, a book came out. Was it The Cuckoo's Nest or something like that? I never read it. I can't remember the exact title. Something like that. Anyway, this book, in uh, I think it was the year 2013, July 7th was the week, sold something like 46 copies. That was it. Cuckoo's Nest, something like that. 46 copies during the week of July 7th, 2013. The next week, July 14th, it sold 17,642 copies. It was the number one seller in the United Kingdom, number one seller in the United States of America. Why? All the reviews had been positive. Everyone spoke well of this book. It received five-star rating or whatever it is you give a book. But why all of a sudden from 40 copies, almost nothing, falling off the charts to the number one bestseller? Because it was revealed that the author was not indeed, was it Galbraith, Robert Galbraith, but J.K. Rowling, right? Popular author. The book was exactly the same. Nothing had changed. No modification to the content. Those who read it and reviewed it, the reviews were excellent before, the reviews were excellent after. What had changed? Merely a name. And people's desire to be associated with what? A name. It is the way our world functions. And far too often, it is the way we function in the church. Our desire for status, our desire for influence, our desire to be somebody or be something. And we will identify either a person or a thing or a movement identify ourselves with it, with what goal? To elevate our status, our influence, our prestige in the eyes of others. That's the dilemma. That's the Corinthian dilemma. And Paul reminds them of these three great truths. Do you not know who you are? Do you not know what you own? And do you not know whom you serve? Yes, you do know then why are you behaving like that? Because that behavior is completely antithetical to what you know to be true. We struggle with the same problem. Let me come at it from a slightly different angle. Do we feel secure? Three questions to help us in this regard. Do we feel insecure? Are we insecure in our appearance? Our dress, our knowledge, our ability, our job, our relationships, our ministry. Add whatever you like to the list. If so, here's what will happen. We will seek to attach ourselves to people whom we perceive to be more beautiful, more stylish, more intelligent, more capable, more skilled, more popular more gifted. We will try to overcome our insecurity by finding our identity in others. And it never works. We end up hopping from friendship to friendship. We end up resenting people because they never give us what we crave. 
and we end up despising those who we perceive to be beneath us. You see how relevant this is? Do we feel insignificant? Here's question number two. And do we think that significance, meaning is tied to success or popularity? Or as is extremely prevalent in the evangelical world today, do we think significance is found in the vast array of posts and blogs, seminars and conferences, ideologies and methodologies, books and manuals? If so, here's what will happen. We will attach ourselves to a group, a cause, or a movement that makes us feel significant. These things will become our identity and they will become the measure by which we judge others. Here's another question. Do we feel unappreciated? Do we crave praise? If so, here's what will happen. We will orchestrate scenarios that draw attention to ourselves. We will attach ourselves to the athlete, the musician, the pastor, the theologian, the conference, the movement, the trend, the cause, the band, the team, because we think they will give us what we desire, status. Do you see how relevant this is to evangelicalism? Paul's question rings through the centuries. It is as needed today as it was in his day. Do we not know? Do we not know? Do we not know who we are? The temple of the living God, indwelt by God's spirit. Do we not know what we own? All things, all things, the world, life, death, the present the future, it's all ours. Do we not know whom we serve? God Almighty. This identity, this identity, these truths, they are source of our sense of security, significance, and self-worth. If we seek them in anything else, we succumb to the Corinthian dilemma. There's the relevance of the text and how it transcends the centuries and speaks to us today. There is much more in this text. Let me wrap it all up by emphasizing this, stressing this. When we do act according to what we know, again, it's Paul's main point here. Do you not know? He's going to use it eight more times in this epistle. Do you not know? Do you not know? When we do know it and when we do act according to it, these three truths who we are, what we own, whom we serve, it will be evident in our obedience of four commands. Now, I know I've just thrown you a curveball. There are five in the sermon notes. I've combined numbers four and five. Four commands. When we act according to what we know, it will be evident in our obedience of four commands. Command number one, right there in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. And so when we really begin to act according to what we know, we will realize what? 
We don't want to be a mere hearer of the word, as James warns us, but a doer of the word. And we'll stop deceiving ourselves into thinking we are something we are not. We will stop deceiving ourselves into thinking, well, we know, we know, I know that already. No, we don't know that already if our lives aren't consistent with what we claim to know. It's a false sense of knowledge. We have divorced the head from the heart. We believe knowledge is cognitive, cognition. No, true knowledge involves volition. To know something is to act upon it. So if I stand before you and say, I know to stick a fork in the light socket is unwise and could spell big trouble, but I go ahead and do it anyway, guess what? I don't really know, do I? I can say I do. There's some cognitive comprehension, but I'm acting in a manner completely antithetical to what I say. I know. Hence, I need to begin to doubt what? Whether or not I really know in the biblical sense. Because in the biblical sense, true knowledge brings these two together in an inseparable union. Cognition, yes, mental understanding and volition whereby I act according to what I understand. And so when this begins to take root, we obey this command, let no one deceive himself. Stop deceiving yourself into thinking you are something that clearly by all evidence you are not. Here's the second command, still in verse 18. Let him become a fool, right at the end of the verse, that he may become wise. Why? Because the wisdom of this world, two kinds of wisdom, the world's wisdom, God's wisdom. The wisdom of this world, well, it's foolishness. It's folly with God. The Old Testament confirms this. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Again, verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The world's wisdom, oh, it cherishes and craves power and influence, prestige and notoriety, popularity and status. The divine wisdom comes by means of a bloody cross. It comes by means of absolute humiliation, self-denial. It comes by means of a crucified Savior. Oh, it is folly in the eyes of the world. It is wisdom in the estimation of God. Here's the third command. Still in chapter 3, verse 21, right at the outset. So let no one boast in men. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, stop doing what you're doing for all things are yours. Here are the men they've been boasting in. Paul himself, Apollos or Cephas, there were probably others, status seekers by identifying themselves with these human leaders, turning them into something they never claimed to be, playing them off against one another and therefore quarreling and dividing the church. No, when you really understand who you are and you understand what you own and you understand whom you serve. This kind of behavior will stop. Let no one boast in men. And then there's a fourth commandment. When we act according to what we know, it will be evident in our obedience of what? The command there in verse 3, begin reading chapter 4, verse 3. 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. You don't judge my ministry is what Paul is saying to them. I don't even judge myself. Why is that? Uh, there is a judge, verse 4, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Here's the command, verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He sees our motives. He knows our attitudes. He knows whether or not service is motivated by pride or humility. He knows whether or not service is driven by a desire to please men and to be known by men or to please our master in heaven. He's warning the Corinthian church, you are sitting in judgment upon me, Apollos, Cephas, playing us off against one another, judging our ministries for your own men's to satisfy your own cravings. No, when you understand who we are and when you understand what we own and you really understand whom you serve and you begin to act accordingly, oh, you will obey this command. Do not pronounce judgment before the time because judgment belongs to the Lord. Oh, let me bring it all together. Everything we've heard this morning, just get our arms around it as we close, and let me try to sum it up for you in one statement. One statement. Here it is. When the craving for status, when the craving for status, so if, if, if this is all we walk away with this morning, this is it. When the craving for status and significance, and worth, and power, whatever it stems from, whatever causes it, tempts us to seek for it through people or anything else, we must remember what and act consistently with what. Oh, I pray you've got it by now. I must have said it 20 times. Who we are, right? What we own. And whom we serve. The question, here's your application. Wednesday night, I'll send out an email later. Do you not know? Do I not know? Do we not act in a manner consistent with what we know to be true? Our Heavenly Father, give us wisdom in these things and a heart to obey. Give us spiritual eyes that we might indeed perceive and grant us willing hearts that we might indeed put it into practice. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the good news of sins forgiven by virtue of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we pray that as we grow in conformity to your word and your will for us, that Christ might receive all the praise, all the honor that is due him. In his most precious name we ask it. Amen.